0: Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio.
1: Good evening and welcome. Tonight we are joined by professional soprano and private music tutor, Sofia Livetov, to discuss the place of music in education. But join us as we explore life as a student in European conservatoires, the performer as teacher and the portfolio career and the benefits of a universal music education.
0: Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. The hashtag, follow the hashtag ttradio.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. You join me tonight at the start of a half-term holiday that this time last week seemed like it might never come, as each early start of the past fortnight has gradually got darker and darker, while the moorland fog has begun to linger for longer and longer into the late morning. It's been a long seven and a bit weeks, but this extended unbroken run has given us all a chance to make it through our year 11 set texts at excellent pace so my happy band have already completed half of cambridge's igcse poetry anthology and have begun to get to grips with some of the more rarefied poetic diction that appears in the poems of love wisdom and aging collection composed before 1600 Most of them can now distinguish an I am from a trochee with a respectable level of accuracy. Some have discovered that their Christian names are actually dactyls and one has even asked why we don't have more hexameter poems in the anthology. Last week gave my year 11 students the opportunity to start their set novel, the Australian gothic mystery boarding school thriller Picnic at Hanging Rock. We have just reached the part of the end of chapter four, when our party of 19th century girls have returned to college from their Valentine's Day outing to Hanging Rock, but without three of their older schoolmates. So far, it seems that the weirdly supernatural rock, alive with an animal presence that constantly eludes the eye, has claimed them for itself. Inevitably, The last person to see them all together is Irma, a girl who is unable to conceive of the concept of a million without getting a headache and who barely has the words to form a coherent witness statement for the patient members of the Victoria Constabulary. This will be the first time I have taught this text, although my colleagues did a fine job with it last year. It is fascinating to see how the boarding school students sitting in front of me respond as their 19th century counterparts moan about having to learn romantic poetry by heart, keep their gloves on throughout the coach ride to Hanging Rock, and be back for tea by late afternoon. They seem to have been surprised too by just how much responsibility the senior girls appear to shoulder for the success and the well-being of the younger girls in the novel, assuming a status that is typically held by recent graduates In today's british boarding schools of additional interest to me as i listen along to the australian audiobook reader with my class is the way in which the staff are presented as complex fallible and human with lives that unfold and develop in interesting ways even during term time the late 19th century setting suggests that the novel's events take place within 20 years of the Education Act of 1872, which established a system of free, secular and compulsory education in Victoria, overseen by the newly formed Education Department and an Inspector General and Crown Minister to direct it. In such an educational environment, Appleyard College as a private fee-paying school, established by a single proprietor, represents a continuation of the English tradition of an accomplishment education for the daughters of the wealthy at a time when Victoria's private schools were not subject to inspection or regulation by any of the bodies created by the Education Act of 1872. Oversight of schools such as the college would not come until the Education Act of 1910, which brought the responsibility for maintaining standards in private schools into the remit of a new council of public education. And what we see in Picnic at Hanging Rock is an account of a school trip gone wrong, supervised by staff with limited training, dubious academic credentials, and incomplete knowledge of the region into which they have been transplanted. A contemporary Ofsted report into events at Appleyard College as presented in the text would surely read like a dummy's guide on how not to run a boarding school, with an added twist of the supernatural macabre, which is ideal for reading at Halloween. The penultimate week of October saw the students and staff of the boarding house in which I am a tutor, take a journey out of the countryside and into York for an afternoon to celebrate the life and works of St. Margaret Clitheroe, a Roman Catholic martyr, Of the Elizabethan period who was pressed to death under a door for the then treasonous act of harbouring Roman Catholic priests. We learnt how the comparative ordinariness of her life stood as an example of the nature of the moral courage that we might be called upon to demonstrate in different ways in our own lives and as a reminder that the saints were all men and women of flesh and blood before their canonisation. Our walking tour of York took in the Shrine to St. Margaret Clitheroe, which is hidden away on the shambles behind a plain brick façade. The Bar Convent, which houses a secret Baroque-styled chapel, and an excellent museum on the history of Catholic worship and educational provision in the north of England. And it concluded with some prayer and reflection. In the Grade II-listed York Oratory, surely one of the finest examples of a Gothic revival church anywhere in Europe. Then it was back to college for some food and some social time with the whole party intact, I'm pleased to say, before finishing the evening with a candlelit service of sung night prayer. The day was a welcome pause from the assessment marking and grade report writing that can otherwise define the slog towards the half-term holiday. Now that the clocks have turned back, of course, the attention of those in many choral boarding schools naturally turns towards Advent and Christmas, and the rehearsal of carols and the vast annual set piece that is Handel's Messiah, while keeping track of the liturgical changes that come with the start of the Advent season. The closing date for BBC Radio 3's annual Christmas carol writing competition also falls on Tuesday so any student musicians aged 11 and over who are thinking of coming up with a melody to accompany simon armitage's polaris poem had better get cracking inspired by armitage's recent arctic writing residency and by preparations for this year's g7 climate summit the poem in subdued fashion ironically subverts the well-known imagery of Christina Rossetti's 1872 lyric in the bleak midwinter by starkly reporting, police are hunting high and low for the thief who nicked the winter snow. It's certainly a brave choice of base text by the composition organizers. Out go the three magi, the shepherds, the angels, the stable, the oxen and asses, Mary, Jesus and Joseph, Herod, and all the familiar cast. In fact, the sole reference to the traditional nativity narrative exists in the one-line refrain, which implicitly suggests Polaris is the nativity star, the one sign in the heavens that can still be seen from motorways the length and breadth of the country by anyone taking the time out of their busy lives to look up and reorient themselves but the star of the North is the star of truth. Personally, I'm interested to see what some of our emerging new folk singers might generate from such a prompt. But in tonight's show, I'm pleased to say we will explore the role of musical education and training in professional and academic contexts with international German soprano, Sofia Livetov. Sofia, who is based in Leeds and Strasbourg, has performed at a number of international music venues, including Tonhalle Zurich, Wigmore Hall, Tivoli Vredenburg, and the recent concert stage in Jakarta. She has featured in the Oxford Leader Festival, the University of Leeds International Concert Series Summer Festival, and the Orchestra of Change's Climate Concert Series in Germany. Sophia has taken operatic roles in productions of La Boheme don giovanni and the magic flute among others and most recently appeared in the role of owl in opera north's production of the cunning little vixen during the COVID pandemic sophia recorded her first album sounds of indonesia with tenor satira krishna when she isn't busy performing herself sophia teaches piano singing and music theory to private students ranging from coaching on classical vocal techniques to practice for the associated board examinations in English, German, and Russian, a teaching career that spans thirteen years. And I'm delighted to say that Sophia joins us on the line now. Good evening to you, Sophia. And thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio today.
2: Good evening, Christopher. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Well, I hope my overview has given our listeners a strong sense of your dedication to professional music. But is there anything you would like to add by way of introduction?
2: Um, no, I I think it's been all, all correct. I'm currently still in contract at Opera North, being part of the current season and yeah, continue to perform in the UK and abroad.
1: A busy time.
2: Yes, very busy currently, yes. <laughs>
1: So let's begin then, Sophia, by exploring your route into music. When did your music education begin and how did it develop in the German education system?
2: Well, my when I was five, and um, that is thanks to my parents, to whom it was very important. So I started learning the piano at an early age, and also had uh, music theory lessons. Uh, besides that. And as a teenager, I joined the girls choir in Hanover called Mädchenchor Hannover. And that's how yeah, how I started my my singing career, which was back then still more more of a hobby. My piano playing was at the time much more serious <laughs> than it is now.
1: And when did you start the piano work?
2: Uh, well, I started at, a, at the age of five. And um, yeah, I always had a great interest in, in learning the piano. And during my teenager years, uh, it became more serious. I joined competitions and also the Lower Saxony Youth Symphony Orchestra, where I played the piano and the Celeste in their various projects. And after finishing the gymnasium, I uh, studied piano at the Hanover Conservatory before before switching to to opera singing.
1: And what brought the move into opera singing?
2: Well, singing for me was always more more of a hobby where I could, let's say, relax or not being so competitive. <laughs> and uh, when I started uh, studying the piano, I well, I noticed that it's that it's not really what I imagined to be. I couldn't imagine to doing it all my life and i always enjoyed more making music with other people and as a pianist you spend a lot of time practicing alone so at the same time i also uh had singing lessons and yeah tried to to uh, do entrance exams at different conservatories and at some point i got into the conservatory in lucerne in switzerland which made me move abroad
1: and in your experience, is there a perfect time for a child to start opera singing?
2: Uh, well, as a child, I wouldn't start opera singing. <laughs> as a child, I would start singing in in a children's choir or a youth choir, as I did. And uh, opera singing is something you would develop slightly later, because as a, as a youngster or, or as a young adult, the voice is still developing. So, I would say at around eighteen years it's it's a good time to to start trying out the operatic repertoire or maybe at sixteen years, but not not much earlier
1: so how then does a young uh, aspiring <laughs> opera singer move into familiarizing themselves with that kind of musical repertoire
2: Well, besides opera, there's a huge Classical repertoire, which, which you can, which you can study. I mean, art songs and different oratorio and choral music. And of course, you can, you can learn, uh, arias from operas, which, depending on, on your technical abilities, suit, suit the voice. So that's, yeah, there's a lot of, of things one can try out before starting the conservatory.
1: And in the German school system, generally, Sophia, is there a particular emphasis on high quality music teaching alongside children's academic studies? Is that something that's a big part of the experience?
3: I
2: wouldn't say that. I mean, every school or every gymnasium is different. And in every state in Germany, the the education varies. But I was doing a lot of extracurricular work, taking private music lessons, and of course during the choir and the symphony orchestra. But um, the gymna- gymnasium I was at, which was uh, which had a focus on ancient languages, um, there were always a lot of opportunities for performing. So they were organizing school concerts where you could perform, even with an orchestra sometimes, and. Um, They would definitely encourage that. I also had the possibility of graduating the gymnasium with a music major where my practical skills as a pianist could be taken into account in the grading. So my teachers were very kind when I was missing out on school due to concerts or, or other things
1: connected to music. And how is the music curriculum examined in Germany at the moment?
2: Uh, oh, what do you mean exactly?
1: So, if you're moving through a gymnasium in Germany, how uh, how is music tested in examination situations?
2: Uh, do you mean something like ABRSM?
1: I'm thinking more of the leaving certificate you would finish school with.
2: Ah, oh, well. I mean, if music is one of your of one of your major, um, I don't know what I think. I had Latin and uh, Catholic religion and biology, biology with it. But uh, music. I mean, we obviously had to write tests, and uh, as I said, some uh, elements of my performing career. I was attending um, competitions, which in Germany is called youth competition for youth making music so i had some success there and that that uh, was also being considered at the, during the exams but well let's say in germany you can visit a music school or you can take private music lessons but there's let's say not not such thing like abrsm or trinity we we don't have that If you're good enough uh you try and enter a music conservatory and then of course there is the specific rating system which takes place at
1: conservatories fantastic so let's think about (laughs) conservatories now then sophia what kind of preparation goes into a student making that application to push their musical interest that much further in the conservatory system
2: that depends very much on the instrument. Uh, for example, as a pianist, you start usually very young. So you have already years of practicing and performing. And uh, yeah, lots lots of lessons. You prepare a specific uh, program for the entrance exams. I mean, it's very similar to what is happening in the UK or other countries and then you have also theory exams and if if you're good enough and if there are enough places then then uh, yeah you, you get a place
1: <laughs> and how much of this entrance exam is focused on the theory as much as the performance is it a kind of 50 50 split um
2: if i'm honest i don't remember that but the theory exam is important so yeah you have to you have to get through the the music theory exam i think in for all instruments also for singers so yeah that's a lot of people do do need to study for that
1: (laughs) and how many instruments you required to be proficient in for that kind of entrance exam
2: (sighs) If it's uh, for piano or string instrument, I think it's just the main instrument. As a singer, uh, you also need to play piano a bit, but that exam usually is not—it's not very difficult.
1: And once you're in, Sophia, you get this extensive and quite intensive training in musical performance, working with uh, leading practitioners internationally. Are you able to say a little bit about your experience of going through that process for our listeners?
2: Um, Well, when you start studying, you have a lot of practical lessons. Obviously, Uh, one-to-one lessons are very important in order to help you progress and uh, develop your technique. Uh, Then you have, again, music theory lessons, as a pianist you have ensemble lessons then music history uh, i also had some psychology lessons uh, in combination with teaching as a singer you have drama lessons and opera scenes and also language lessons uh, language coaching and it changes from year to year but uh, yeah it's it's a lot it's a lot going on <laughs> which makes it very interesting to study
1: yeah, I'm particularly intrigued in the psychology lessons. Are you able to say a little bit more about that?
2: Well, the psychology lessons, what I was talking about, uh, because I studied piano and piano education, so that was more about the teaching psychology. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that was very much connected connected to teaching.
1: And what kind of element did that bring to your experience of teaching?
2: Uh, well, I think it's important uh, because I mean later in Lucerne after doing my bachelor in uh, singing and also opera school, I also did a master in vocal pedagogy uh, where again the psychology aspects of students come comes again. So it's rarely that you end I mean end your study years and, dive in immediately into a performing career. Mostly it uh, becomes some kind of a portfolio career where you perform and teach. And if you want to be a good teacher, then of course, um, the, the psychological as- aspect is, is of importance, because you're working with young or young people or older students and every student is different. So you need to have the ability to adapt.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm particularly interested in this idea of the independent route through music training that the conservatoire system seems to offer. What kind of approaches were your friends taking while you were at, was it Lucerne, you said? Yeah. What what kind of directions did their um, development take?
2: Uh, You mean uh, the colleagues, uh, my colleagues I was studying with
1: Yeah, that's right. And the different directions did they go in? Were they all going into classical music as well?
2: Uh, Well, some of them, for example, uh, they started teaching a lot. Some of them are now teaching at at conservatories um, or at music schools where they not only teach classical music, but also pop. Uh, Some of my colleagues, they're, they're doing they're actually only performing or have international careers so it's it's very 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 different from person to person it also depends what what you like do you like traveling or do you like staying more in one in one city or one country it's um, it's very very individual
1: brilliant and when you come out of the conservatoire system what further study and training is needed afterwards if you're particularly keen to go into a career in classical music?
2: Well, let's stay with um, singing because that's that's my <laughs> career now. After finishing the studies, um, I mean, you start or even before you start working on building your network. Um, For example, I was performing concerts, but at the same time, I still continue studying with a private teacher because as a singer, the work never ends. Your voice keeps developing depending on what repertoire you have to sing and uh, you never know how your voice actually sounds. So you need someone who tells you if you're doing the right thing or if maybe you have to adjust. So you continue continue working on, on a private level and um, yeah, just hope, hope for the best.
1: <laughs> and when it comes to applying for various roles in particular concerts or particular productions, how do you go about making decisions about which are worth applying for and which aren't? Mm,
2: well, let's say what was before the pandemic, because before the pandemic there were more opportunities, also in the UK. And um, I mean, first of all, it's a financial aspect because going to audition, to auditions, or even if you have to travel to other countries, it's always a lot of money. So you have to decide which auditions or opportunities are worth, um, yeah, worth w- worth approaching. And uh, then you have to know if it's something that one can sing well, or if it's something that fits the voice. And if it's both the case, then you go and try. And what has changed after pandemic that of course, there are less opportunities. Um, Now we know with the cuts for the funding for arts organizations, including opera houses and orchestras, uh, there are basically less jobs. So at the moment, if i get a new audition then i'm i'm going for it
1: brilliant and <laughs> in terms of managing the shift between opera which is of course has that element of drama and potentially dance and significant movement on stage yeah and the classical concert hall performance how do you manage that transition
2: mm. I would say, I mean, it it happens by, by itself. Um, an opera production never never happens in, in a day or a weekend. It's usually a process of several weeks of uh, musical rehearsal and then stage rehearsal. So you really have the time to dive into the drama and the acting besides the actual singing. And um, Concert performance is a little bit differ- different. There, fewer rehearsals, so you come already prepared and then make music with with um, yeah the musicians that you're performing with. So it's it's slightly slightly different. Also during concerts, I sometimes or often I can use my score, while on the opera stage everything, of course, is uh, off score.
1: Yeah, what's, what goes into learning all of those parts when you're on stage in an opera? How much preparation, preparation goes into making sure, making sure you've got the sure you lines learned? Lines lines
2: oh, uh, a lot of preparation. I mean, now I uh, at Opera North, if you're in the chorus, then you work every day, uh, have musical rehearsals for six hours, and then again, uh, a lot of rehearsal time on stage um, until everything is really on autopilot.
1: That's incredible. incredible. I I don't (laughs) quite know how you managed to fit all this stuff in, Sophia. Excuse me? I don't quite understand how you managed to squeeze all this stuff in to 24 hours in a day.
2: (laughs) Um, yeah, I think, uh, you get, you get, you get used to it. I mean, this season was very busy. We had, we have, or still have three opera productions going on tour next week to Newcastle, Nottingham, and uh, Manchester. And this week we had five performances of three different operas. So um, yeah, the brain, the brain is uh, really
1: working. Sounds <laughs> but like you a also neck get neck.
2: used to it. Yes, definitely. <laughs>
1: Well, we've got some questions coming in from listeners, um, Sophia, oh, great. I might put to you if that's okay. We might save some for later because we're going to be touching on some of these topics a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. So thank you to Paul Foz for his question. He's just sent about uh, what particular things he might do for children who have a talent for singing. We're going to look at that in the last section of the show. I've got a question or it's more of a statement actually from nick who says i started learning at five as well it clearly went wrong but i love playing the cello and piano do it if you love it is there a chance that a child might pick up the wrong instrument and if they do how do they correct that uh,
2: well well of course um i mean i think it's best if, if a child notices that it's not the instrument they they would love instead of stopping it would be it would be great if the parents would encourage the child to try out other instruments um so it's it's always nice if um if you see children in the concert hall where they can see how an orchestra is playing or what singers are doing and it's yeah basically to try try out new new things but um why learning in an instrument is so great, especially for children, because they learn to be disciplined uh, in a positive way. Um, because of course, even if you're very talented, you can't progress without practicing. So maybe if you don't have enough fun with an instrument, it means that one has to practice a little bit more to enjoy playing the music you like, or to play more songs. So an instrument can teach a lot, not only just the music, but also listening to each other, communication with other musicians and, uh, yeah. Reaching specific goals.
1: That's a really good response. I think a, a sense that. If the volition is there from the child to engage with the instrument, whatever it might be, then that practice is going to become easier. Practice is always one of the more challenging things to uh, engage with in music, I suspect. Like I can remember being a young chorister myself and having to uh, go through quite lengthy performances just to produce a passable piece of music for our local parish congregation. <laughs> So I I can only imagine what it's like in some of these international opera houses. Well, thank you, Sophia, for that detailed insight into the work that goes into developing a musical talent. Much of this work, of course, goes on unseen in the background as part of a learning journey that is as unique as the musician, and one that seems to grow as much out of chance meetings with other musicians as out of disciplined practice. Anyone who's ever tried to learn an instrument might be familiar with the professional musician's life is already a busy one, but somehow, as we've said already, you've also managed to fit in some private teaching, Sophia, which I'd like to explore in the second part of the show, if I may. Mm -hmm. And listeners, if you've got any questions you'd like to send us in your message, then we will follow those up in the rest of the show, and we'll be right back after this.
4: Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co
5: Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
3: A record number of students from disadvantaged backgrounds have applied for the most selective UK university degrees, says a report on the BBC News website. The report is based on data released by the Universities and Colleges Admission Service, known as UCAS. The students have applied to Oxford and Cambridge and for degrees in medicine, dentistry and veterinary science. UCAS Interim Chief Executive, Sander Crystal, described the applications, which have an October deadline, as encouraging. The Sutton Trust charity, however, said that the advantage gap had hardly shifted. The data is based on a participation of local areas measure, which splits students into five groups based on how many people aged 18 and 19 in their area go on to higher education. Those from areas where the fewest numbers of young people go to university are classed as the most disadvantaged. Applications for this group are up by 7% since last year, in contrast to the most advantaged areas, which is up by only 2%. However, the total number of applicants from the most advantaged areas is over 17,000, compared to a little over 3,000 from the most disadvantaged areas. Other key findings from October applications include a 6% increase in the number of UK applicants receiving free school meals, although the overall numbers of those receiving free meals is on the rise. A drop of 7% a year in 18-year-olds applying to medicine degrees and a slight drop in total numbers of international applicants. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan was in the news again this week as she told English schools that parents have a right to view the sex education materials which are being taught in schools. The announcement comes as the government is due to launch a public consultation into relationships, sex and health education. Guidance has been in place since the subject became compulsory in primary and secondary schools in September 2020 but Miss Keegan said she wanted to debunk the myth that parents cannot see what their children are being taught. Jeff Barton of Askell said he agreed with transparency on our SHG materials and that this is key but that sending the letter when some schools were on half term was slightly odd. The BBC also reports that Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has been accused of misleading the public about the risks of social media and of contributing to a mental health crisis amongst youth. The claims were made in a federal lawsuit in the United States, but many in other countries will be following with interest. The lawsuit accuses the company of ensnaring users whilst concealing the substantial dangers of its platforms. It also said that the company had collected data on children under the age of 13, and that this breached the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Meta is contesting the lawsuit and will likely present research it says shows that teens say social media actually helps them when they are struggling. It's not the first time social media companies have faced lawsuits, but it is the first time so many attorneys general, 33 in total, have signed such a suit, in addition to those already filed by families, young people and school districts. Those working with children and young people in the UK will undoubtedly be interested in the progress of the lawsuit. Dyslexia Scotland has announced on its website that former Strictly Come Dancing winner and Dyslexia Scotland ambassador, Hamza Yassin, will talk to an audience as part of Dyslexia Awareness Week Scotland. Yassin, who is dyslexic, became an ambassador for the charity earlier this year. He says he is passionate about sharing his story during events held in the first week in November. In a week where The Guardian reports that more than one million UK children experienced destitution last year, meaning their families could not adequately feed, clothe, clean or keep them warm. The BBC covered a story of a primary school in Peckham, where most children are homeless. The school has nearly 300 pupils, all of whom receive free uniform, trips and meals. The school conducted a survey in which most families describe themselves as living in non-secure tenancies. This can mean sofa surfing with friends, living in B&B accommodation or living in hostels. Parents of children at the school spoke positively about the support they received from the school, but also focused on the toll the uncertainty took on them and their children. Meanwhile, The Guardian tells of concerns expressed by poverty campaigners, teachers and welfare workers about the damaging effects of destitution, including physical ill-health, mental illness, school absence and poor behaviour. Both articles can be found online and give more details on the latest findings. Finally, Schools Week reports that as many as 1 in 10 school workers had to wait over 60 days for DBS checks last year. A Freedom of Information request showed that 2.5% of those submitted took more than 60 days to complete, more than triple the rate in 2021-22. Jeff Barton of Askell says it all adds to the pressure that school leaders and teachers face in recruitment and reflects the widespread underinvestment in public services. A spokesperson for the DBS said neither Ofsted nor the D have raised any concerns about delays. This has been your Teacher's Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.
1: Welcome back to our show on music and teaching with classical soprano and private music teacher Sophia Livatov. In the opening section of the show, we learned about Sophia's exciting journey through the European conservatory system as a student and the challenges that come with establishing a career as a touring musician. But how does private music teaching fit into this pattern, Sophia? And when did you first start teaching students?
2: I began teaching student students at a very, yeah, quite quite early. I think I was twenty twenty, maybe uh, first as an um, assistant um, or helping them with music theory. And when I moved to Lucerne for my vocal studies, I got a job as a piano teacher at a boarding school in the Swiss Alps. It was, it's called Ecole d'Humanité, where I was teaching young, young elder, adults and teens um, piano and also chamber music.
1: And were you living at the school at the same <laughs> time?
2: no I was living living in Lucerne but I was traveling once once a week there which made my my studies possible
1: <laughs> and how did you find teaching in the boarding school environment it's perhaps closer to the conservatory environment in some senses
2: mm, well mm, not not quite maybe that school but uh, it was very... Yeah, it it was very exciting because the children were very different coming from different countries and with different backgrounds. And because of obviously the parents weren't there who would maybe at home push them to practice more. So the kids were yeah, on their own, either they would practice or they would not practice. That was my job to encourage them to do more, (laughs) which sometimes was quite challenging, but uh, often very, very rewarding.
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking about that international mix, though, it's a really quite potent combination of languages and cultures and ways of thinking about music. In my own boarding school, we have students from six continents across the world. We have students from Australia, Africa, everywhere you could think of. And what it brings to the choir is a real kind of international flavour that perhaps sets that kind of environment apart from the traditional English state secondary school.
2: Yeah. Well, at that school, I don't know how it is now, because it's already a couple of years ago, but uh, the children, they didn't have access on a Or to a computer only if they had to study or they didn't have uh, mobile phones uh, which they could play with all the time so basically in the free time in the free time they had to entertain themselves either by I don't know games or playing music together or yeah so that that was uh, a special environment I don't know if it's the same now
1: (laughs) and was there much of a culture of the children forming their own music groups where you were
2: Uh, yes, indeed. I remember I had a music group where they they were combining Mozart with, um, percussion instruments and creating some compositions by themselves. And there were also, uh, I think some, they were putting some theater shows on and concerts. And yeah, it was, it was important for, for them to, to get the experience of performing, but also to share what they have learned with their community. That's why I think it's very important for schools or music schools to give that possibility to perform, because that's why, why we are doing it. It's not just for us to learn some music, but it's to share with others, no matter how small
1: that circle is. I'm just thinking. In my own school, we have a similar kind of student-led uh, movement when it comes to music. In the past, we've had some of the boys form their own barbershop quartets to entertain their classmates at various things like Christmas dinners and other things. We've had girls form their own kind of version of a barbershop quartet. I don't quite mm-hmm. know what we would call the female version of that. And then we also have our standard mix of sixth form uh, aspirant rock stars with their own little bands they've set up, and the practice rooms are always thundering with the sound of music. Oh, that's uh, great! One sort <laughs> or another. Uh, <laughs> was that the same where you were?
2: Uh, yes, that sounds sounds familiar.
1: Yeah. And after this experience in boarding school, uh, music. Sophia, you went into private tuition afterwards. Is that right?
2: Yes, uh, because after Le and I did another postgraduate master in Amsterdam, which was focusing entirely on uh, performing. So at that stage, I I was having private students and also mainly adult students because I just didn't have the time to, well, to give all my attention to children. Um, I like teaching teenagers, but it's also very, yeah. You need to have the time and the focus to to really, to to really to really do it. With adult learners, it's a little bit different.
1: So let's have a think about the teaching process then in one-to-one scenarios. What can a student gain from one-to-one music tuition? Do you think so they can't gain from a school-based examined music curriculum for example
2: well one-to-one i think it's if if the relationship with the teacher between the teacher and the student matches uh then it can be be really one of the best experiences uh, a music student can have and uh because in a one-to-one lesson the teacher can really Uh, give their undivided attention to the student and help them to work on technique and solve problems or give solutions specifically to the students needs. It's not possible in in a bigger group because the time is just not
1: there. And what aspects of your experience as a former music student shape your practice now as a private music teacher?
2: Well, as a student, I was fortunate to study with uh, absolutely wonderful teachers who gave me so much. And I'm very thankful for that. I also had, let's say, less inspiring pedagogical approaches. And what I'll definitely learned is that being a teacher is a huge responsibility, which can't be taken lightly. especially if, if it's if it is teaching children, because I can, I mean, I can open the child's eyes towards classical music and inspire them to learn and go to concerts. But on the other hand, a teacher can also really destroy the urge, ch- child's urge to do any music. So that's why, yeah, the responsibility is is huge. And as a teacher myself, I always try to find a An individual approach um, to a student be it adult or teenager and um, yeah discover with them what they what they want to achieve what their goals are and um, yeah maybe explore with them what what they can reach sometimes you never know what what you're capable of unless you try it out
1: and do you feel any sense of responsibility since you mentioned that word to pass on any particular approach or method in your practice? Um,
2: Well, of course, every teacher has has a method, but it doesn't mean that it can't change. It depends, again, very much on the students' needs because everyone learns differently. Some students can read music easily, some need more help with that. Others, um, I don't know, have, have different areas where which they would like to develop. So I'm not very, I don't like to stick to a specific method. method. i rather be flexible and well, it's also more interesting for me if I, yeah, if I try to find a personal approach to, to every student. <laughs>
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I sometimes read the biographies of various classical composers. And sometimes you get a sense that there's always something of the teacher that the student takes away with them and brings it into their own voice or into their own work. I wondered if you had a sense of any particular influences that you are aware that you're either introducing students to or introducing into your teaching of those students?
2: Mm, You mean influences far from my own teachers?
1: That's right. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yes, for sure. Maybe something I'm also unaware of. Um, I mean, for example, as a piano teacher. I do teach more uh, beginners, but I remember as a beginner myself, I was never taught to improvise or, yeah, play without without a score. So this is, for example, what I was, yeah, learning myself when I had time during the pandemic to implement more into my own teaching. Um, because I think I think it is important.
1: So one would imagine then that some of your students would be able to walk into these various railway stations we find across Europe and produce a tune on the pianos they find on the platform.
2: Uh, Well, hopefully, yes.
1: (laughs) And what kind of work goes into that that we don't see when we have the virtuoso performance?
2: Mm, Sorry, could, could you phrase this question again, please?
1: Yeah, what, what's sitting behind all of that improvisation that we sometimes see in public spaces?
2: Uh, you mean uh, the, the work they have done before?
1: Yeah, how do you get better at improvising if you're used to working with a score?
2: Well, of course, you have to have an understanding of the harmony and freeing yourself from from a score is, is not easy. But um, learning to improvise gives you another, um, yeah, another sense of, of playing. Or for example, yeah, singing, I mean, improvisation and singing was also important, especially in baroque singing where singers were improvising just as the as the performance was going on. This is something I think we have slightly lost because everything needs to be perfect. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's it's a lot of um, practicing, also a lot of work just maybe slightly different than you would do with a score.
1: Thank you. I've got a couple of questions coming in from our listeners, I might put you if that's okay. So One question from Paul Foz is, do you come across singers operating at your level who went to UK state schools? And. He says, I know Russell Watson and Leslie Garrett did, but doubt whether there's any opportunity for talents from deprived areas. Do you have any thoughts on this?
2: I must say, I, I actually I don't know who of my colleagues went went to state school if if I if I'm honest, um, but but that's true. Well, for example, I know that uh, Opera North has a very exciting education department and where they have an outreach program for deprived areas and workshop workshops for schools and youth choir and youth orchestra so I think there are there are even in the UK opportunities for people um one just has to look for them but of course they're not there there should be more
1: it's often the people of course that need to look for them most aren't quite sure where to look in the first place isn't it there's that public education mission that's needed as well really isn't there Did you catch that last question, Sophia? I think we've lost Sophia briefly. We'll just try and see if we can get her back. Sophia, are you with us?
2: Uh, Can you hear me now?
1: Yes, I can. I was just saying there's a bit of a public education mission that's needed, certainly in the UK. Uh,
2: Christopher, sorry, can you hear me now?
1: I can hear you now yep can you hear me yes yeah (laughs) I was just saying that perhaps there's something of a musical education mission in terms of the general public being a bit more aware of what opportunities might be available to students from more deprived backgrounds certainly one would hope the school would be the first point of contact for those types of students Uh,
2: yes I mean the it it should be the school in in best in best case should provide the information to parents where children could could get a maybe free music education or less expensive, and but I mean in ger- in generally what's currently happening now in the country with all the funding cuts to not only to opera houses but other arts organizations and uh, even uh, summer schools now so i think there should be a general mission to for music and drama to to be taken seriously but especially by by the government as well (laughs) that's that's unfortunately also the problem
1: yeah i think we might return to that theme in the in the last section of the show i was just wondering about adult learners sophia what prompts adults to take up private music tuition and How do you guide them? Mm,
2: There are, yeah, it's again, very different uh, because obviously people, (laughs) people come from different backgrounds, but I had students, I have students who started learning the piano, for example, already in their forties and fifties. And for them, it's just a way to recharge after a hard day of work and take the minds of everything else to refocus uh some a student even said it's like yoga for the brain (laughs) and the fingers for that's a good way of describing it (laughs) for others it's for example if they would like to reconnect with their grandchildren who are also learning an instrument and um, sometimes i had a students whose parents never supported them and he always wanted to learn the piano but it wasn't possible and now he finally could do it and i'm a big believer that it's never too late too late to learn an instrument or to start singing at any age because there are always so many benefits for the health and the well-being that um yeah we'll just make make the life better (laughs)
1: And for those adult students and indeed younger students that you coach and teach, if they're looking to push their musical education beyond the hobby or beyond something to do after school, how do you start to prepare them for the challenges that come with long rehearsals and competitive auditions?
2: um mm, I uh I have to think about that um well students let's say let, let's take uh, an example of a singing students a singing student Uh. of course if someone decides to entry that profession or to start auditioning they already bring a lot either they're very talented or they studied already a lot as a child. So they, there must be, yeah, a big, a big wish to do this, this career. And um, already entering a conservatory can be well, yeah, can be quite stressful, because you have to do entrance exams, you have to prepare for theory lessons. um, So that requires a lot of discipline. And um, yeah, good good preparation and good nerves.
1: And is there anything else they might need in addition to the discipline, good nerves, a determination to want to do the career? Is there any other element that's important in them making that transition?
2: Well, I think we talked about that. Of course, support from the family would be great. I've been very lucky to have parents who always supported me and encouraged me to do what what I wanted to do. Um, Or, I mean, at least friends, of course, as a teacher, you uh, a teacher should be also very supportive. But I think it's also important to be honest with the young people that this is a difficult profession. And, of course, there is always a way if you want something and are really passionate about it. But uh, it's not an definitely not an easy way. And there is no guarantee that when you finish your studies that uh you'll be able to make a living usually that takes years and years of building a portfolio career and understanding what one's strengths are and also a big amount of luck
1: certainly it sounds like luck comes into it Um, but if we think about the last few years particularly the pandemic i mean the whole of the world seemed to Get landed with the same bad luck at the same time, what role did the pandemic play in reshaping your teaching and reshaping your performance
2: mm, The pandemic definitely made me more resilient, and I would say, well, I make me acknowledge that it's really the path that I wanted to take because of course everyone was hit, but the, especially the world of musicians and singers were was hit even more because we couldn't perform, we couldn't sing. For example, all my contracts were canceled and I couldn't go on stage for over a year, uh, which is of course horrible for every artist, but uh, also very difficult because of uh, the loss of income. So yeah. <laughs> it was difficult, but on the other hand, um, it made me think about my career, what I wanted to say as a musician, and um, I decided to learn more, learn more about uh, the aspect of self-management. I joined a course uh, from the Bio Owner Manager community in Vienna, led by Bernhard Keres, uh, where I learned more about self-promotion and marketing and um organize an online music festival with colleagues and together with my partner satria Krista, we recorded an album with indonesian art songs so yeah i think i can keep myself busy
1: <laughs> sounds uh, like it and in terms of your teaching did you move into online teaching in one-to-one scenarios and if you did how did that feel
2: uh yes i moved into entirely into the online teaching mood uh, mode. Uh, Well, I was on teaching online before with some of my students who are based in other countries. So it was not entirely new, but uh, I was surprised how well it was working. I even uh, taught five-year-old children, which with the help of parents uh, progress quite well. And I still continue to teach online well not as much as before obviously due to due to my performance career but um, it, it was interesting i learned a lot i'm well i'm a fan of technology so i do believe that online teaching can be can be effective as
1: well that's really interesting to hear i wonder with the singers particularly how that works in terms of the singer's posture and the way they project their voice when you're working in this online environment do you have to make any particular adaptations to the way you think about the guidance you're giving them if you're essentially advising them through a screen
2: yes um with singers it depends very much on uh, their level uh in general with Beginners, it might be a bit more difficult, but with students who are a little bit more advanced, uh, you need to find a way to explain something maybe differently because you can't show them or maybe I can't show them how my breathing is exactly. But um, that forces uh, well, that forced me to be more precise and find yeah, clearer ways to express myself. And now with microphones, well, today my, my, my mic gave up, <laughs> but um, with microphones, the sound quality, sound quality can be quite good.
1: I'm just thinking how accompaniment works though for students who are singing to perhaps a piano accompaniment, what kind of arrangements did you need to make sure that that still happened?
2: Well, for piano accompaniment, I pre-recorded a company, um pre-recorded um, what they were singing. Um, now, I didn't try it now, but there are new uh, apps which made it, make it possible to sing or play at the same time without any delay. So, yeah, there are a lot of possibilities. Of course, I must say, in life of course it is better i mean (laughs) we we don't have to discuss that but it doesn't mean that um, online teaching doesn't have its benefits as well
3: well
1: it's it's really pleasing
2: it's better than for example if someone is ill or can't come it's still better to have an online lesson than miss an entire i don't know two weeks of of lessons
1: yeah keeping that momentum going is important isn't it yeah It's really pleasing, Sophia, to hear a professional performer talking so enthusiastically about the work of music teaching and supporting those with a desire to develop their musical knowledge, technique and interest, whatever their age and background. I'm sure your students will hear the benefits of your teaching as they make fewer mistakes in their piano playing Mm -hmm. or are able to sing that lengthy semi-quaver run they've been working on for months in the single breath that is written. But what effect has your teaching practice had upon your ongoing development as a musician yourself?
2: Um, well, I think every time, for example, in summer, um, I visited uh, Indonesia for the second time with um, uh, Tena Satya Krishna, and our pianist. We gave concerts, but and also masterclasses, and every time i do that i realize that it actually makes my singing also better because uh with beginners you have to go back to the basics or if i have to teach the same repertoire i'm singing it yeah it it makes me think more about the technical aspect or maybe helping someone with a specific problem which in the end benefits myself so I I like teaching. I think there should be a good balance between if you're teaching and performing, for example, at the moment, I don't have many students because I just don't have enough time for that. But maybe next year that will change and I will have again more time and capacity to focus on on students.
1: Well, that's very eloquently put, Sophia. Thank you. <laughs> In the final section of the show, I'd like us to reflect a little on the place of music education in Britain, Germany, and wider Europe, and on how we bring more children and young people into our professional music venues. And we'll be right back after this.
4: Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more.
5: to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy
2: reading.
1: Well, welcome back to the final part of our exploration of music study, teaching, and performance with Sofia Livetov. We've talked about the special nature of one to one music tuition. Sofia, And I wondered whether we could think a little bit about whether society places enough value on music education in Britain, Germany, and wider Europe. I mean, what cultural differences have you experienced in attitudes to the value of professional classical music culture in the course of your performance career?
2: I think that, of course, there it sh- it should be valued more um as in general art should be valued more but if i would compare uk and germany or other parts of europe then definitely in uk it's sadly sadly less as i already mentioned especially what is happening now with all the funding cuts which is i mean devastating for the institutions but also for all professional musicians who are basically losing their livelihoods and also if there won't be enough professional jobs what's the point educating young young people to become professional musicians so that's that's in the first place and um yeah it's a difficult question how to change that but i mean from my perspective as a musician in general during the pandemic there were so many online concerts and the musicians tried to provide comfort and support for everyone else so maybe now it's the time where we need the support from our audiences and music lovers to uh, to, yeah try to put some pressure on on the on the government and in general to raise the voice that music education and general arts education, theater education is it's important. It's a way how we can express yourself and how to form creativity, which will benefit other, other areas. Even if someone studies music and doesn't become a professional musician, the education will benefit for their future life. But I'd, yeah, I don't know how to answer that question, sadly. <laughs>
1: Have you seen any particularly successful schemes in Europe that we might replicate over here?
3: Um,
2: Well, in the first place, for example, in Germany, the education is basically free, I mean, on conservatory level. It depends very much on the state, but let's say, I think in Hanover, it's about 400 euros per semester in Berlin it's even less so I mean people can afford this and and then you can get if you're talented enough get another uh, grant or support from the government it's not like in the UK that the education is so so expensive and I mean there are There are programs which which are already happening. I mean, I already mentioned the education of Opera North because I have been in in contact with it. There are other smaller companies and institutions who who provide it. They just need more support. I know in Germany and in Switzerland, professional musicians are going into schools and playing concerts. I've been part of um, concerts for children, and it's always so exciting to see how easy it is to engage children in classical music. It's it's not difficult at all. They just need that exposure.
1: And we've spoken already about your own musical journey starting at around about the age of five. Mm. How good do you think we are in the UK at welcoming five year olds into our professional music venues?
4: hmm
2: I think there yeah I think there could be more I know for sure there in London some concerts for for toddlers I think um and there I know in the north also performances for children but uh I'm sure that there there, there there can be much much more for example yeah opera north does uh performances for children also at schools also specific children opera which is great Uh, but i would say the more the more the better also for children to see actual other children perform on stage that is i think even more inspiring
1: yeah i can remember taking my she's now eight year old daughter down to london to see the ENO relaxed performance of Philip Glass's Nartin, which is a fantastic opera. And it's um, one of those pieces that really, really stays with you. And it was really, really nice to be able to take her into the opera house, or the theatre, I suppose it is, technically, um, for this very, very long performance. We'd already seen it acted out on the television from the met performance that was done during lockdown so we kind of knew what we were in for but the experience of being in there seeing all the costumes and the lights and we had the lead singer actually do a little talk and presentation both before and after the performance to really give the children a sense of they're not just passive observers of the traffic that takes place on stage but encouraging them to join in with various parts of the chorus it was really really quite inspiring to see
2: yeah that's uh that must have been great and i mean that it uh, the children are definitely interested in in this in this kind of music if it is made if it's presented in a in an interesting way
1: and what kind of performances are in the offing in north of england then for children under 11 say to experience this wonder of being in the opera house or the theater space and engaging with these characters some of whom may be dressed up as owls
2: (laughs) well that what we had in uh, march our the production of the cunning little vixen uh, we had also school performances in Leeds and in the other cities, Opera North is going on tour too. And yeah, the reaction from children was always so much more different than from adults. They, <laughs> It was, uh, yeah, very, very fun to watch.
1: Did you get to go into the schools as well? Uh,
2: no, the schools were coming into the theatre. But and... I think there were also... Uh, a show called little vixen for smaller children and i think next year there will be uh another production coming i i just don't have all the information at the moment
1: and did you get the chance to talk to any of the children who were at the performance yes
2: yes yeah they I mean, the children I talked to really, really loved it. Also, especially seeing children dance and perform different animals on stage. So that, that, that was exciting.
1: Yeah, if I'm thinking about the children on the stage with you, what have you appreciated in working with young people in your recent performances?
2: Uh, excuse me, could you repeat the question again?
1: Yes, I suppose I'm asking what it's like working with child performers as a professional singer.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, every time I'm I'm doing it, I am so impressed how how great the children are. They're so disciplined and so professional, and yeah, it's it's very very impressive what what they can achieve. Uh, Besides uh, Vixen, uh, there was also um, a performance of uh, Eugene Onegin um, with the youth orchestra and also singing singers, uh, young singers, and they did an incredible job. Or also in the last Tosca production, I mean, it's great. It's children are capable to to show and to achieve so much. So. I think um, a lot of times they're being underestimated, if I may say so. (laughs) And And they take it also very, very serious what they are doing. Sometimes we were, I was feeling more like a child than they, than them.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I was just going to ask how the rehearsals are designed to make them child friendly for such big productions.
2: Uh, Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's taken care of their by the for example by the education team and i mean i i don't know the specifics of it but of course they're not not working as much as uh, professional opera singers are they have uh, restrictions and they're always someone uh, taking care of them so an education team yeah
1: so they've got a kind of wider support network to help yes, them deal yeah. with everything that goes on around that. And yeah. how do they manage to fit their studies in? Presumably there's time set aside for them to keep up with their schoolwork.
2: That's a good question. We, I don't have the answer for that. Uh, but I am i mean, uh, after school, they. I think Opera North has also a program after school. And I'm happy to connect you so i'm sure the person uh at the in the education team will be able to answer that
1: (laughs) and if we go further afield into some of your performances outside europe what kind of experience have you had with younger children or young people in the music spaces that you visited
2: um
1: are you often performing for younger audiences when you move outside the uk
2: i wouldn't say often but i do i do performances for example last year i did a climate concert and one of the concerts of the climate concerts were was specifically designed for children uh it was about um species who went extinct or going to go extinct and I was singing, I was singing the part of the wolf and other instruments were playing different pa- parts, uh, different animals. So that was very engaging for children. and uh, recently I also have done master classes in Indonesia with a youth choir and again, I mean it, it was amazing, just amazing to work with them because they, were so into the music so serious in three hours they changed so much and um yeah well it's it's fascinating how quickly children can adapt and uh, and learn
1: and how does the music culture work in indonesia it's a country i don't know a lot about
2: well in indonesia there's I mean, there's no state funding for music education. It's um, all mainly private funded, but it's a huge choir community and they operate on a very high level. They do, for example, international competitions. um, And yeah, choir singing is very, very popular.
1: And is that a community based thing or is that something that's developed by schools?
2: it's uh, more community or also coming from university for example my partner who is a professional singer he was he first studied architecture and at the university they had a had a choir formed of students for different department departments and um yeah that's how he he became a singer basically through a choir <laughs> also churches of course but um yeah
1: yeah, I was going to ask actually when you' when you were talking about your experience in the first boarding school you worked in I presume that wasn't a religious school. Would I be correct in making that assumption? Yes yeah. So I wonder what you think the role of religion is when it comes to also taking responsibility for developing classical musicians, given that so much of the classical, music repertoire has a kind of religious base
2: oh that's <laughs> that's a difficult question um, well i honestly i i don't have an answer for that but i think if a community be it a religious community or a a church or um, any other community, be it at school, can in, can encourage music making um, on any level. Then they that should be done.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly <laughs> thinking about some of our some of our new students who we've brought to the school specifically because they've got a particular talent for liturgical singing, and it's an increasingly rare skill in England to have children who are particularly equipped to work with religious music, especially since in the Yorkshire area, of course, we've we've recently had the Minster School close, um, based at York Minster. And that's had quite a significant effect, I think, on admissions to other church schools around the country
2: yeah 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 that's um that's that's very sad because it i mean what what is so great about music making and i mean singing or playing an instrument that music is a universal language it doesn't matter where someone is from or the belief or anything is just when you make music is just about making music and being in in the moment so yeah
1: well I think that just about brings us to the end of the show Sophia so I just like to say I've greatly enjoyed our conversation and exploring your thoughts on the complementary nature of your performance and teaching work it's been an absolutely fascinating education for me personally and our listeners have certainly appreciated your answers to some of the questions they've posed In English schools, it seems it's now all too common to see music squeezed out of the academic curriculum to make yet more time for writing and counting, and to see music training as one of those luxury features of school life that gets shunted into ever-diminishing lunchtime and after school extracurricular slots. Good school music provision so often depends on the hard work and dogged determination of one inspired and inspiring teacher who can hold the baton, bring out the best of their charges in limited evening rehearsals and manage the reams of paperwork that come with rights clearance, risk assessments and curating the performance space. And yet how often are music departments expected to put on an immaculate musical programme when a whole school set piece event is required an assembly procession, a carol service, a summer concert, a recruitment open day. Then, of course, a school's musicians represent the whole learning community and the sense of harmony that every good school would aspire to have. I've always been convinced that the school that sings well together will have a lot of other things going right elsewhere. It's been a total pleasure to have you with us tonight, Sophia.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: (laughs) Perhaps we could have you and your partner on a later show, perhaps next year.
2: Yes, that would be lovely. Thank you.
1: I wish you every success with your performance, rehearsal and teaching work as we stand on the brink of an Advent and Christmas season that will see you performing in Mendelssohn's Elijah in Halifax next week. Is that right?
2: Yes, exactly. Coming Sunday. Yes and
1: in silent night in germany in december yeah well thank you very much indeed sophia it's been great thank to thank you very you on. much
2: christopher thank you good night good night Bye.
4: are you looking for lesson planning materials to kick start the new term we've got you covered The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more.
5: Visit Johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
1: So thanks again to Sophia Livetov for being such a knowledgeable and thoughtful guest this evening. And thanks to everyone who's tuned in tonight and sent their messages in do check out our other teachers talk radio shows this week we have a number of new hosts continuing to make their debuts this month so take a look at the schedule on the website and give them a listen if you can i'm sure they'd appreciate your support and in show text messages catherine taylor's show on teachers as reflective learners continues some of tonight's threads as she speaks to professor rachel lofthouse about CPD on Tuesday's Late Late Show at 9pm while Tom Rogers and James Radburn discuss data analytics and its educational role on tomorrow's Late Show at 6 o'clock. Just two shows that I think are worth a live listen. As always, you can catch up on anything you've missed with our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters at www.ttradio.org and if you'd like to learn a bit more about some of the pressures on secondary music teaching then Amanda Kinsley-Smith's show on Music Makers as Dream Makers should be on your playlist or if you'd like to know why children like spooky stories then Darren Lester explores this question in his latest show on Spine Tingling Fiction. Both shows can be found from the website by searching by topic or host name at the top of the Listen Back page. And if you have something you want to say or ask others about education anywhere on planet Earth, then perhaps you should consider applying to join the station as a show host. We are always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less familiar educational settings. Full details can be found on our website www.ttradio.org or if hosting seems a bit too much at the moment then consider applying to appear as a guest on a show via the contact page. I'll personally be looking for guests for my 2024 shows between now and Christmas. That's all from me for this month so thank you for listening. I wish you a happy and musical late autumn half term. And we will speak again in November. Goodbye.
0: You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.